Praise the Lord. Hopefully everybody's doing well this morning. Hopefully you came with a mind frame to get what God has got in store for you. Um, we're in week four. This is the last and final week of our series, Cole. If you've been here and heard any of it, have you enjoyed it? Has it been a blessing to you? Hopefully it has. If you haven't heard it all, it's on YouTube, it's on Facebook, it's on uh, podcasts. So I'm, we're doing every route that we can to get the word out. So there's, and I'm just going to be honest and, and transparent, there's no reason you shouldn't hear these sermons because we're working and we're working diligently to get it done and get it right. Week number one, we talked about how coal was valuable and what, that God valued us as, as his children we talked about how that coal was removed from the altar and it was placed into the presence of the Lord. And that was a, a blessing to me. But week number two, we talked about how coal is to burn. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't release the kids. Kids, if you want to go, you can go ahead and go this morning. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm bad at that. Anyway, so week number two, we talked about how coal has a consistency and, and, it, and it burns. Okay, And then last week, we talked about how coal yields to the hand of the holder. Coal can't do anything on its own. It has to yield to the hand of the holder. And I am super pumped about today. Super, super pumped about today. This sermon is, I woke up this morning super early with it burning on my heart and on my mind and went to the kitchen and got me some coffee and sat down and just looked over my notes and let the Lord begin to talk to me. Amen. Because I feel like God talks to you better when you have coffee. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Ice or hot, either way, I guess, okay? But uh, I want to talk this morning, if you want to turn your Bibles, turn your Bibles to John chapter 18, and we're going to start reading there, John chapter 18. And, uh, but while you're turning there, I'm going to kind of open this up. When you see, or when you hear, or when you touch, or when you taste something, okay? See, hear, touch, or taste. The sensory information, it first heads, and I'm going to butcher some of these words, but it's, it's scientific and I'm horrible at this, but we're going to kind of dive into this. It first heads to the thalamus, I believe is how that's pronounced, which acts as your brain's relay station, okay? And then the thalamus sends that information to the relevant brain areas. According to the hippocampus, I believe is how that's pronounced, I could be wrong, which is responsible for memory, and the amygdala, <laughs> which does the emotional processing, okay? That's big words, but pretty much what that means is, is when you taste, see, touch, or feel, your brain records a memory of it, all right? And then sends it to the place that stores your emotional feelings, okay? But with smells, it's different, all right? With smells, it's, it's a little different. Since they, uh, they, they bypass the thalamus and they go straight to the brain's smell center and known as the olfactory or olfactory bulb. And the olfactory bulb is directly connected to the amygdala and the hippocampus, which might explain why the smell of something can immediately trigger memory. When you smell something, sometimes it will immediately take you back. Y'all ever been there before? Maybe the smell of rubber takes you back to a, a tire swing that you had in the yard. Or maybe when you smell fresh cut grass, 
it immediately takes you back to the old home place or or something like that. But for me, when I smell asphalt, it takes me directly to Dollywood. Okay? My mind immediately goes to Dollywood, and I'm standing in line for a dog and taters. And if you don't know what a dog and taters is, it's a foot-long corn dog and hand-cut fries. Okay? So my mind is immediately there when I smell fresh asphalt being either laid or poured or however they do that. And so that, that smell will link to memory. Just keep that in your mind for a minute while we get ready to dive into this. John chapter 18, verse 15 is where we're going to start, okay? Verse 15 is where we're going to start. And I want to just read it from my, my hard copy Bible there, right? Amen. So Simon Peter was following Jesus. Okay, now let me give you a little bit of a, a pre-story here, what's going on. Jesus was in the garden. Jesus has been arrested. Okay, I want you all to remember this. Jesus was in the garden. Jesus has been arrested. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest. So he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. They're getting ready to try Jesus, and they're going to find him guilty, quote, unquote, and they're going to crucify him. And so they took Jesus into that courtyard. John was able to go into the courtyard. Peter had to stay outside for a moment. Verse 16. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one who known the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper, and they brought Peter in. So pretty much what happened is, is John was like, hey, I know this dude. He's cool. Let him inside. Okay? And so this is where it gets a little sad. Verse 17. Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper, said to Peter, Aren't you one of this man's disciples too? She's like, you're, she said, Aren't you one of this man's disciples too? Are you? Question mark. Peter's answer, I am not. He said, Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing there warming themselves and Peter was standing with them, warming himself. Later on in the scripture, verse 25 there, we see this. I'm going to read it. It's probably not back there, but I want to read it. Now Simon Peter was standing, standing there and warming himself, and they said to him, You aren't one of those disciples too, are you? And he denied it. And he said, I'm not. In verse 26, one of the high priest servants, get this, one of the high priest servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off in the garden. He said, didn't I see him with you in the garden? <laughs> Remember the whole fiasco that took place? They're trying to arrest Jesus and Peter's like, no! And he takes a sword and he cuts the dude's ear off, right? And the guy was like, I literally saw you there defending him in the garden. And you're trying to stand here and tell me? That you are not one of the men. And Peter denied it a third time and the rooster immediately crowed. The rooster immediately crowed. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you'll just take this word. That you'll open up our hearts. You'll open up our minds. You'll peel back the layers of, of, of stone, God. And you'll give us hearts of flesh one more time. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. 
Amen. So it's kind of funny to me that, you know, Peter's trying to deny the fact that he knows the Lord when one of the guys is like, look, you cut my cousin's ear off. I know it was you. Okay, quit trying to, to, to deny it. We know that it was you. And I believe that Peter genuinely loved Jesus. I believe he did. I have no doubts in my mind that Peter genuinely loved God. He loved Jesus. He walked with him for three and a half years. It was an amazing experience. He genuinely loved him. But the question is, is if he genuinely loved him, why did he deny him? Why did he lie? Why did he fail? And one reason why I think that that's the case is he was blinded with confidence. The funny thing about failure is, is that many of us think we're past it. Many of us think that we don't have the capability of failing. Now, with that being said, let me say this. If I went around this room and I asked everybody in this room, are you susceptible to fail? Every single person in this room would say, well, yeah, Pastor Joe, of course I'm going to fail. I know, I, I know I'm going to fail. I, you know, I would never try to admit that I'm perfect. And you would look at me and you would say, I am guaranteed to fail at some point. You've heard me say that more than once. I'm guaranteed to fail. And you may... Or may not realize this, but we all know that we're capable of failing, but we all still carry a sense of pride that we're not going to. And the reason why is because we're not saying, no, I won't fail in the moment. We're saying, no, I won't fail out of the moment. But when the moment comes, right, and the temptation's right, or the atmosphere is right, and the setting is right, and everything is we are then met with the question of will I walk this out or will I not? And we often think that we can handle ourselves in those moments when in reality we can't. And a prime example of that is Peter. Peter, um, in Matthew 26, 31 through 35, let me read it for you. Then Jesus said to them, tonight all of you will fall away because of me. It is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And I love Peter's confidence because he is. He's confident. And Peter says, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. He pretty much said, I'll never mess up. Truly, this is what Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says this, even if I have to die, even if I have to die, I will never deny you. Have you ever been so confident of something that you ignore the warnings? Have you? Two scenarios I want to give you this morning. I used to work in a wood factory. We used to make pallets all the time. We used to make glass crates and stuff like that. So I was forever working with wood, cutting wood and, and to length and then nailing it with a huge air nail gun. And, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and my hands would be drawn because it would cramp. But one day I was working and I was cutting wood. And I cannot tell you how other than the grace of God. I cut this wood and the top of my glove had a perfect line cut in my glove but my hand had not been touched and what happened is I got confident 
in working with that tool, thinking, I've got this handled. I'll never cut myself. I'll never hurt myself. And by the grace of God, I didn't hurt myself, but I did have a huge, perfectly shaped line cut out of my leather glove. It was the grace of God. A different scenario is, is that there's someone that's close to our family that recently was building a fire and they, they thought it would be good to pour gas on this fire to help this fire along. And then when they poured gas on this fire, the fire chased the fumes back to the can. And this was just this past week. And when it done that, it engulfed this guy in flames. And they were telling him, stop, drop, roll, stop, drop, and roll. And he was just freaking out, trying his best to get to the little pond that was down below him. And he finally, they got the fire put out. He has third-degree burns all over his body. They've had to do skin grafts to him already. And he thought, if you would have asked him before he done it, Hey, man, that's probably not a good idea. You probably shouldn't do Oh, dude, I've done this a thousand times. It's all right. No problem. No, no, you're going to get burnt. No, no, I'm not going to get burnt. Come on, I'm smarter than that. Let's go. You know, like, no way. You are going, I'm telling you, you're going to get burnt. I'm good. I've got it. All of us have had a I'm good, I've got it moment until we, we're not good and we don't got it. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened with Peter. Our confidence blinds us to reality. And it blinds us to failure. And I'm just saying this this morning because I want to encourage you. You may think you have a situation whooped. You may think that you'll never fall into it. You may think that, oh no, that can never happen to me. It can happen to you. It can happen to you. Truth is, is our confidence often creates weaknesses. When it comes to us doing the right thing. When it comes to us doing the right thing. Peter was so confident that he wouldn't deny Jesus. That he never gave it a second thought when he was tempted to deny Jesus. Scripture tells us that he was so confident. That he's like I would die before I denied you. Then guess what happened? Fear was put on him. Temptation and pressure was put on him. The setting became right for him to do what wasn't right. And he crippled and he buckled and he denied the Lord. Something that kind of strikes me odd about this story is, is that we see Peter and we see him whenever he does this particular uh, failure or this particular sin is that he was cold. He was cold and he was warming himself by a fire. A fire that was made by the men who were there for the courtyard council. And a couple weeks ago we talked about what it means for a Christian to burn. We should be on fire. We should burn with passion for the Lord. And when something burns, it never gets cold until the fire is gone. And Peter found himself in a, a position where he was cold. Peter got around some people that he normally wouldn't get around. Peter started associating with people he normally wouldn't associate with. Why? Because he wasn't warm. I don't know if you're picking up the parallel that I'm putting down this morning, but the truth is, is that 
we, we, when we find ourselves getting cold and we're not going back to the altar for the fire, we'll start looking for the fire somewhere else. Come on, somebody. And we find ourselves around the fire of foes, the fire of enemies. Peter, Peter got around people that he wasn't accustomed to, and that fear began to cripple him. And when that fear began to cripple him, he began to make decisions that he normally wouldn't make. I guarantee you if he was surrounded by the twelve, his attitude would have been a little bit different. His answers would have been a little bit different. His reality would have been a little bit different. But the fact is, he was, he was standing by a fire with people that he wasn't used to being around. And they were asking him questions. And he began to get scared. Becoming cold. And I want you to hear this this morning. This is something that I feel like we all carry this guilt and this shame and this weight around. But when it, how many people have ever been on fire for God? Like, remember when it, do you remember what it was like when you first gave your life to Jesus and the embers were hot and the fire was hot and you wanted to tell everybody, man, let me tell you what God done for me. It's the best thing. It's the greatest thing. He set me free. He restored me. He gave me life. And all of this joy is just oozing out of you. And then at some point along the way, you got cold. And reality is, is every single one of us at some point in our life has been completely on fire for God. And we've been cold. What if I told you there's no shame in getting cold? I grew up in churches where if you wasn't on fire and you wasn't blazing hot 100% of the time, they just knew something was wrong. Well, he ain't where he's supposed to be with the Lord. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? And they'll start to judge you and condemn you and all of that stuff. But in reality, I've learned that hot and cold is the nature of a Christian life. It's normal for someone to get blazing hot with the passion of God and to, to get cold. The problem is, okay, and I want to make this very clear, it's okay to be on fire for the Lord and it's okay to have days where you're not on fire for the Lord. The problem is, is where you go to find the heat again. That's the problem. Because many of us, I don't know about you, but many of us find ourselves in positions and predicaments where we're wanting what God can only provide us. We start looking for it somewhere else, right? John 18, 18 said this. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing there warming themselves and Peter was standing there warming himself. Right? And so what happened was, is Peter began to look for something to warm himself other than where he could, you know, found, found that strength and found that, that hope. And that was with his normal community. There will be moments when that fire doesn't burn as hot as it once did. And you feel spiritually cold. Listen to me. But I warn you, be careful by warming yourself from an enemy's fire. Why? Because an enemy's fire, it looks inviting. And the people are enticing. Right? And the people are relatable. And they understand where you are. <laughs> they understand how you feel. They get it. They've been there. Y'all ever had that situation before? Let me ask. Here's a good scenario. There's been times that I've, I've had disgruntlements in church. Pastor Joe, okay? I, let me just tell you about a quick story. Uh, there was a time not long ago before I started pastoring that I called up a buddy of mine. And I was like, man, I'm just not getting fed where I'm at. I'm just not getting fed where I'm at. 
<laughs> and I was looking for someone like-minded to, to be like, you know what, you're, you're right. You need to get out of there. That's not good for you. You know what, you need to change. Or that what you're doing right now is good. I was looking for someone to affirm me and my feelings. Come on, somebody. I was trying to warm myself by a different fire than the fire of the altar. Thank God that this individual looked at me and said, you're acting childish. You need some humility in your life because you don't have all the answers. Because I told him, I was like, man, I'm not getting fed. He's like, dude, what are you talking about? He said, feed yourself. Get in the Bible yourself. You don't know all the answers. He's like, quit being prideful. And this dude called me to repentance and led me back where I needed to be. Thank God. But I've also had scenarios where I've told people, this is how I feel. And they're like, you know what? You're right. You're exactly right. And you know where that led me? To begin even colder. To be an even colder. Come on, somebody. The enemy's fire sets you up for consumption. To be consumed. When you hang out with people who you're trying to get to just answer all of your questions and to affirm you all the time and give you the advice that you want to hear all the time, all you're doing is setting yourself up to be consumed by the enemy. But the, the Lord's fire sets you up for communion. It sets you up for companionship with God. Come on, somebody. It sets you up with relationship for Him. God has an amazing way of restoring things, right? Here's my thing this morning. We need to get back to the right fire. We need to get back to the right fire. I love this story. I love it so much. John 21, verses 1 through 17. I'm not sure exactly what we have loaded up. Verses 3. Okay, so let me tell you what happened here. Uh, just a little preface of what was, was going down. So Jesus was crucified. Peter denied him three times, right? And I love this story because Peter tells him, man, if I die, I'll go all the way to the cross with you. I will. I will. And when Jesus is sitting there, the only person he sees is John. He's like, where's everybody at? You know? And because Peter had done wrong, and because Peter had messed up, and because Peter had failed, verse number three is what Peter said. I'm going fishing. He knew he'd struggled. He knew he'd messed up. He knew he'd failed the Lord. And in that failure, he said, I'm going fishing. And what that represented was, is I'm going back, I can't do this. To Peter, this is what he was saying. I can't live this life. I can't be godly. I can't be like Christ. I'll never look like Christ. I'll never sound like Christ. So I'm going back to the only thing that I know how to do, the only thing that I can do myself to affirm myself, to give myself affirmation, I'm going fishing. Simon Peter said to them, and guess what they said? We're coming with you. Do you know that even in your disgruntlement, you're leading people? Ouch. Even when you act like a heathen, you're leading people? Ouch. People look at you, and they're looking at you, and they're saying, well, how's he going to respond to that? What's he going to do with this? How's he going to be this way? Truth is, is that when they look at you, they're going to follow you. And they followed, and they said, we're going with you. And they went out, and they got into the boat that night. Guess what happened? They caught nothing. And when daybreak came... Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't know it was him. Friends, Jesus called to them. 
You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them. He said, you'll get some. So they did. They were unable to haul in the number. Verse number 7 is where it's at, though. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He tied his outer clothing around his waist. It's so crazy to me. Tied his outer clothing around his waist. For he had already taken it off. So, I don't understand this. Peter was fishing naked for some reason. Okay, this makes no sense to me. But he was fishing naked and he ties his clothes around him. And he plunged himself into the sea. Again, this don't make any sense to me. But since they were not far away from land, about 100 yards, the other disciples just came in the boat and they were dragging the nets full of fish. Peter carried such a weight and such, a, such a, a guilt and a shame that he wanted to get to Jesus so quick that he didn't wait for the boat to move. And the boat wasn't that far away. Literally, by the time they were pulling up to the shore, Jesus getting out of the water, I mean, uh, Peter's getting out of the water, just drenched, soaked. And here, I love this, verse number 9. When they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish laying on it and with bread. Jesus is my guy because he likes to eat. Here's the thing. I want to read a little bit further, but I want you to hear this particular part of the story. That fire's laying there, and in verse number 10, Jesus told him, Bring some of the fish that you've caught. Simon Peter climbed up, and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish. And even though there were so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said, Come and have breakfast. And then none of the disciples dare ask, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Listen real close. Jesus came, he took the bread, and he gave it to him. And he did the same with some fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Now, here's the, the first thing I want you to hear is when Jesus said that, do you love me more than these, what was around him? More disciples, right? But the fish. And Jesus is asking him, do you love me more than you love your self-sufficient life? Do you love me? And Peter said, yes, I do. I do love you. He said, well, then feed my lambs. And then a second time, Jesus asked him, said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said, well, shepherd my sheep. Then he asked him a third time. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he had to even ask him a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. He said, feed my sheep. And Peter, I want you to hear this, in his disgruntlement, gave up his calling that the Lord gave him to run back to what he was used to. And that's what many of us do. All the time, many of us are guilty of this. When we mess up and we fail, it's easier just to say, forget it. I'm not able. <laughs> I'm not capable. 
It's, it's too hard. This religious thing is just too hard. I can't handle this. All of the rules and regulations, the guidelines, all that stuff. I just can't do it anymore. And it's easy for us to just say, I've already messed up. What's the point in trying? Did y'all ever do that when you were younger? I've already messed up. And you're just wilding out, right? <laughs> I've already messed up once. I might as well just whew, dive head first into it. And a lot of times we're guilty of that. We live how we want. We act how we want. And we live like God never existed. But there's something that happened in this moment. The truth is, is this moment became the second best day of Peter's life. The very first day was whenever he met Christ for the first time. The second best day is when he met Christ for the second time. It's exactly, the setting was exactly the same. When he met Jesus the first time, he was out in a boat, and Jesus said, hey, have y'all caught any fish? And they're like, no, we've not caught any fish. He's like, well, put your net on the other side. And they caught so many fish, they couldn't handle it. And then he called him. He's like, look, you're no longer going to be fishers of fish. You're going to be fishers of men. And he followed him for three and a half years, and then he decided, you know what, I'm going back fishing. He called him the exact same way he did before. And he responded the exact same way that he did before, except this time it was still just a little bit different. I want you to see the parallel here. The very first time, it was fresh and it was new, and he had never followed Jesus before. The second time, he had a guilt that was hanging over his head and a shame that was hanging over his head because he had failed the Lord. And when he came to him, when he came to him, it was, it was a different type of, 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 of um, submission. He came to him with that guilt and that weight over his head, knowing that he had done wrong. Another quick story that's kind of funny. It reminds me of a time that we were selling donuts as a youth group. <laughs> and as a youth group, we sell donuts all the time, right? And so one night, a bunch of us were all hanging out, and we were waiting for a buddy of ours to get off work. And we were all riding around in the vehicle. There's a vehicle, and there was a baseball bat. And you know probably what happens next. There's a group of kids in the car saying, do it, do it. You know, so what do we do? Guy floors it. Baseball bat wraps around a mailbox. And then we drove away, never to see the mailbox again. Wrong. The next day, we go selling donuts. And our youth pastor, for some reason, drives by this same house that we knocked the mailbox to the ground. As we drive by, there's a cop outside, and the owner of the home is outside. No big deal, right? We're driving by. Wrong. Youth pastor decides it'd be funny to stop and ask them if they want donuts. Everybody involved in knocking over the mailbox was in the van that stopped while they were doing a police report. And the whole group of guys that was guilty just got real quiet and we slumped and everybody else was acting normal but all of us were like holy cow there was a guy named moose we used to hang out with we called him moose and he was like guys we're going to jail we're going to jail i was like man we're not going to jail i was like shut up moose that's what i, I was like quit we're not going to jail and and so we we got out of it scotch free they had no clue what was going on and he was like man that'd be funny if they bought some donuts wouldn't it and we were like yeah yeah and the youth pastor knew what he said something was up 
we went out to eat, and he said, what happened? He said, you guys done that, didn't you? And I'm like, and immediately, you know, but the rest of the trip, we had this guilt hanging over our heads, and we had this shame hanging over our heads like, holy cow, we're, we're so, man, that was so close. We're guilty. We're guilty. We're guilty. And we carried this weight of guiltiness to the point that he realized that something was wrong with us. And, and, and this illustration, it, it freaked all of us out. It freaked every single one of us out, but it hindered the way that we sold donuts the rest of the day. And what I'm trying to say is, is that something that we had done all the time, something we had done normal, something that was normal to us was hindered because of a weight of guilt and shame. And it's the same way with Peter. Peter had had breakfast with Jesus hundreds of times. But there was a guilt that was there. And there was a shame that was there this time around. I love this. Jesus is guilty. I mean, Peter's guilty and Jesus serves him breakfast. <laughs> and in this moment, the same way that Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus restored him by asking him, do you love me? Three times. And then after he said yes, he commissioned him to preach the gospel again. He commissioned him to preach the gospel again. And I know some of you are probably thinking, Pastor Joe, what's this got to do with coal? Okay, here it is. The amazing thing about coal is it marks. It marks. I don't know, if you handle it long enough, remnants are everywhere. It's on you, it's on your clothes. If you hang around it enough while it's smoking, while it's on fire, you smell like smoke. Peter's first denial, the first failure, the failure of Peter, happened while he was standing next to a burning coal fire. There's no doubt in my mind that he walked away with an intense emotional ties to that moment. And what did we hear when we first started talking today was that smell will link in your brain to emotional moments and you, you can be taken back to places based off of smells. And I have no doubt in my mind that when he walked away from that, carrying that guilt and that shame and that regret, and all these emotions were running through his mind, and they were running through his head, and any time he smelled smoke, it took him straight there. Any time between the failure and the denial and the rooster crowing till he had breakfast with Jesus, he smelled smoke, his mind was there. God, I'm a failure. I'm a mess up. I, I, I've, I've done no justice to the Lord. He was going to be forever tormented by the smell of failure. But when God does something, he does a whole thing. I love this. When God does something, he does a whole thing. Jesus not only restored him that day by, by saying, do you love me three times? He said, he said, yes, I love you. And he said, well, go and, and, and preach the gospel. He didn't only restore him that way. But he done it sitting beside what? A charcoal fire. The same type of setting that he done the failure in, 
Jesus restored him in. And why is this important? Because I believe Jesus wanted to change the very way that he correlated his smell with failure. And from that point on, when he smelled a charcoal fire, he didn't smell the failure that he had. He smelt the forgiveness that Christ gave him. Come on, somebody. Ain't that amazing? That Jesus cared so much about him that not only did he restore him, but he changed the memory that he was going to have. Never again are you going to remember a failure, but you're going to remember being restored. Come on. And there's times in our lives... There are things in our lives that, that we're taken back to. And that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to take you straight back there. When you fail, he wants to take you straight back there every time you stumble, every time you fall, every time you're down. He wants to take you straight back there. Do you remember that time? Do you remember this? And that guilt and that shame lingers over your head. My question for you today is, is what is that smell? <laughs> what is that thing that the enemy tries to drive you straight back to but you've been forgiven over. Because this morning the Lord wants to change the way you smell. Come on, somebody. He wants to change the thing that torments you. Because when He does a thing, He does a whole thing. He don't partially forgive you. He doesn't partially restore you. Whenever He does it, He does the whole thing. And I want to encourage you with that this morning. There's been plenty of times in my life that I've failed and I've fallen short. And the enemy wants to take me back to that failure. And then I have to look and say, man, what is that smell? And I have to remember it's the smell of forgiveness now. It's not the smell of failure. It's the smell of forgiveness now. Whenever I think back and I realize, oh, man, I messed up, it needs to be covered with a scent of forgiveness. Come on, somebody. This is, this is the second time that smells correlates with, the, with forgiveness in the Gospels. And I'm going to give you one more and then we're going to close. There was a lady who was not a good lady. <laughs> and she brought an alabaster box of, of ointment and broke it at the feet of Jesus. And when she broke it at the feet of Jesus, she poured that anointing oil all over his feet. And the Bible says that she dried it with her hair. And the men that were in the room said, If you knew the manner of woman this was, you wouldn't let her touch you. And Jesus said, I have forgiven her sins. And she loves much, and her sins have been much forgiven. You remember me talking about that last week? Check this out. Here's something that God gave me a revelation on. From that moment on, where Jesus went, that smell went. And where she went, that smell went. Oh, come on, that's good stuff. And the thing is, is that where Jesus went, that smell went. And where she went, that smell went. And what that done is, is if somebody passed Jesus going down the road, and then they passed her going down the road, man, she's been with Jesus. She's been with Jesus. And no longer did she, every time that scent passed through her nose, from that point on, she remembered the day that Jesus forgave her. Come on, somebody. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Quit letting the enemy hang things over your head. You're marked. You're marked with an aroma of forgiveness. You're marked with an aroma of, of pleasure. The Lord is pleased in you. And He's pleased because He sees His Son when He sees you. Not your failures, not your flaws, not your history, not your future. He sees Jesus.
And I encourage you this morning. I encourage you this morning. Don't let the enemy cripple you where God wants to free you. Don't let the enemy hold you where God's already freed you this morning. Don't let the enemy tell you that you're not able when God's already said you are able and you are forgiven. Come on, somebody. If you would, just bow your heads real quick. And...